Hello and welcome to series three of the Catalyst podcast. My name is Ken Valady, partner and co-founder at Progressive. This latest series accompanies the new book that I've co-written with Eamon Carey called The Startup Lexicon, which is a guide to the words, phrases, jargon and terminology used in the startup and tech world. In each episode, Eamon and I will discuss two to three key words that are crucial to the understanding of the world of startups. Some of these words you may know, some you may not know, and maybe some, after listening to our discussion, you will see in a different light. All in all, though, our aim is to help demystify the everyday language of startups. And before I forget, details on where you can actually purchase a startup lexicon in both physical and digital format can be found in the episode notes for today's recording. Now on with the show. Afternoon, Eamon. How are you? I am pretty good. I'm pretty good. Just back from the Latitude Conference in Estonia. So it was nice to catch up with a bunch of uh, old friends and meet some amazing new companies. So uh, just settling back into this somewhat changeable summer that we're having here at the moment. Indeed, indeed. So on that note, in today's episode, we want to focus on some words within the S to T section of the lexicon book. In the book itself, we cover many words in this area, including scale-up, seed round, series A to D, and tough tech venture, to name but a few. But in today's episode, Eamon and I will look at secondary selling, sweat, equity, and term sheet. So let's kick off, Eamon. The first word of episode six is secondary selling. And I know, I would imagine, your day-to-day life will take you into contact with this word a lot more than mine. I come across it quite a lot in conversation. I have a lot of startups who talk about it. And from a layman's perspective, my understanding of it is where a company, an individual or a fund sells some or all of its ownership stake to another private investor prior to that company being publicly traded. Or in some cases, it happens in conjunction with funding rounds. And it's, it's in essence, it's a sale by an existing shareholder to a third-party purchaser. I would imagine that is a simple definition but there's lots of devil in the detail behind it all. What, what's your angle on it? As is always the case, definitely a lot of devil in the detail. So if you think about secondary sellings, let's just first kind of define primary selling, which is where a company sells a portion of the equity or ownership in that company to an investor. So it could be a venture capital fund, an angel investor, a private equity fund, etc. And then the money that they receive is used for corporate purposes. So it goes onto the company's balance sheet and they can spend it on new hires or marketing or different things. Secondary sale is where an existing shareholder of that company sells their shares to to someone else. So it could be another shareholder within the company, it could be a third party, but that money goes into the shareholder's pocket. So it doesn't go into the into the company's bank account. And so secondary selling, as certainly we talk about it in my little corner of the world, is usually where a founder or an early employee in a company is able to sell a little bit of their stake to get some liquidity, to get some some cash in the bank. And so typically what, what happens when people start companies is they obviously don't pay themselves a, a six-figure salary in year one. Frequently there's there's not a lot of money around. And so, you know, for, in some cases for the first one, two, three plus years of of the business, founders are taking quite a quite a low salary. And at a stage where the company gets to a certain level of maturity. And typically these secondary sales happen when a company is raising kind of 
you know, five, eight, 10 million plus, and the higher end of that scale and above is, is where it's it's most prevalent. But what it allows the founder to do or the, the early employee to do is to sell, you know, half a percent or one percent or, or some amount of, of their equity in the business and get some cash in. So they offset some of the money that they didn't make when they were running the business early on. They maybe get enough money to, most people use it to, you know, buy a house or kind of give themselves a little bit of financial security so that they can kind of fully focus on the business without having to worry about kind of uh, rent or mortgages or anything else. We're seeing, or at least we did before kind of the, the economy started to go a little bit sideways, we saw a lot of people selling secondary in order to start angel investing themselves, right? Founders see lots of great new companies coming out and in many cases want to be angel investors themselves. And the secondary selling can be a huge component of it. You also see funds doing it. So most venture capital funds run for a 10 to 12 year cycle. And sometimes as they're approaching the end of that cycle, they'll look to sell some of the equity that they hold or all of the equity that they hold in in a business to another investor, another shareholder, in some cases even back to the company so that they can return capital to their investors. So it happens a lot. We've seen certainly a fairly substantial growth in the number of funds who are set up specifically to go and look for secondary transaction in growth companies over over the last little while. You know, it's a, it's a very useful part of the of the ecosystem. You know, we had Kaidi from Funderbeam contribute to the book. You know, Funderbeam was originally one of the big reasons it was set up was to allow angel investors and early employees and others to kind of access liquidity and uh, and do some of this secondary selling. And, and it's proved to be very, very successful. And, you know, you have Cedars and, and others doing similar similar things now. So it's a it's a very popular and increasingly prevalent part of the market, probably more so in the US. I feel European founders have to push a little bit more to get their board to agree to allow them to do some secondary. But but thankfully, that's changing because I think, you know, founders work their socks off to build businesses and, and allowing them to share in some of the upside while still kind of keeping them motivated is a really important thing to do. It makes complete sense. And you know, looking in the book, as you say, there was references to some of the marketplace technology that's out there now to help these sales take place. I mean, from, you know, Forge Global is it Carter X? You know, some some software that I'd imagine wasn't around in the past, but because of the demand in this area, there's marketplaces being set up. I suppose on the outside, I, I fully buy it. You know, someone wants to, it comes to the time as a founder where you want to get some of that cash back. You've put lots of time in, you maybe haven't earned that money that you want or the salary or the wage, the revenue you want for yourself, and you want to you want to draw some of that, which is fantastic. At the same time, I'd imagine because so much is on it there are some pitfalls and the amount's got to be right for both sides. So I would imagine it takes quite a bit of negotiation to get to get to the right amount for both sides, or is it quite straightforward? It's definitely a conversation. I think there are examples where founders have sold a very large chunk of their shareholding and realized some pretty substantial gains, which again, all credit to them for doing that. But sometimes the fear, I guess, that investors and other stakeholders have is, well, if this person sells you know, 75 or 80% of their shareholding, are they still going to be motivated to continue as CEO? Are they still going to be as motivated to continue to grow the company? You know, if this person cashes out 20, 25 million, are they going to be taking as many risks as they might have done before? You know, or in some cases, the assumption is they might take more risks because they've already got kind of a personal balance sheet, as it were. So there's a lot of nuance. And, and I think a lot of it is down to the relationship between the founders and the company and, and their board and, and investors. Because I think 
once you can make the case for what you want to do with the money, once you can make the case for, you know, people who've maybe foregone big salaries in in large kind of multinational companies to, to take smaller salaries to build a business. In my opinion, anyway, it's not unfair to to kind of think about secondary as a way of, of rewarding people when they've gotten the business established. It's got to a million plus in in you know annual revenue and it, it feels like it's a it's a solid business that's going to be around for a long time. And so allowing those founders and early employees to you know, see a little bit of upside is, uh, to my mind, a, a very positive thing. But like everything, as you say, the devil's in the detail and it's a little bit of a balancing act. Well, as I say, I, it's one of those definitions that I think most people understand what it's about. But once you delve into it, there's other nuances there and other learnings to be had. But definitely an area that hopefully most successful founders will find themselves in and have the option to, to make the most of. So makes complete sense. Moving on, maybe on the other side of the equation, the next word is sweat equity. Slightly different. And this is where a company or someone offers their services to a startup. And rather than being paid for those services, they will take equity or shares in the startup, in the business. Now, some people have different views of this. I From Howard, Howard Sims from uh, Apadme, in the, he wrote a lovely story in the book, but there's two sides to this because I can I know quite a few people who I won't name on this podcast who have got sweat equity in quite a few companies and they dream of the day when those companies sell IPO and they get lots of money for all the hard work they've put in and they kind of dream of that and there's nothing wrong with that because it does happen but they they literally live for that and I also know the other side of the story which is companies who use outside expertise and pay in sweat equity but sometimes will say that because then that person hasn't got, got skin in the game, they're not paying them, then the quality of the work that comes back from that person isn't maybe what it would be if you paid them cash or they were an employee of the company. So I think there's pitfalls on both sides. It's a very common, it's a phrase that's used out there. And I'm not sure if I think it's a good option or not. I kind of veer on, be very wary, but whatever side of the table you're on when it comes to sweat equity, what was your take on it? Yeah, similar to you, I know a bunch of people who have, options in companies that they've helped to, you know, should, should that company go public or sell, they'll make a, a pretty penny for their for their efforts. And in many cases, those people have genuinely sweated for the company. If they've opened their Rolodex, they've helped out, they've dug in, they've been really hands-on and, and really involved. I think one of the challenges that, that I see sometimes is there are also an equally large, if not larger, number of people out there who own sweat equity in, in a bunch of companies and they've never perspired a, a drop in their lives. One of the challenges is there are people who will go out and kind of collect equity in a bunch of companies. They don't have the skin in the game of, of making the investment. And once they sign the you know agreement to become an advisor or to be involved in some way, shape or form, you know they'll help, but maybe they don't necessarily always do exactly what they say they're going to do. And I think that's where having kind of really good advisor agreements that are either based around deliverables or milestones or, or you know, some sort of time-based, you know, I want to spend two hours a week with you or I want you to spend some time with this person on the team or be involved in, you know, these sales meetings, et cetera. If you're going to give someone a quarter of a percent or half a percent or a couple of shares in, in your company and options, you need to be you need to make sure that they're going to earn them, uh, particularly at the early stage. I've seen in some cases companies giving one, two, three percent away in options to to someone where you know two or three years further down the line that would have been an option grant for five or six employees, really good employees. So I think you've got to kind of 
think about it very carefully. Like most most founders, when they start a company, they do it purely on the basis of sweat equity, right? Like they're not taking a salary, at least until they, you know, raise capital or until they make their first sales. So I think some people definitely sweat like they're in a in a Finnish sauna. But I think a few others are like they're being fanned at the seaside. So it can be a very positive thing. It can be a real motivator for people. And we've seen it with, you know, lots of mentors who've who've worked on Techstars programs who've been super hands-on with companies and really involved in many cases, kind of recognizing that kind of time and effort and energy they've put in by giving them a, some options and, and keeping them kind of involved and engaged with the business after the program is finished. There, it can be really beneficial. But as with so many other things, I would encourage anyone who's thinking about doing this to kind of do their due diligence on who they're giving equity to, right? Like if you're, if you're going to give someone an advisory position, like talk to someone that's done that with them before and make sure that you're going to get some some bang for your buck, as it were. Because as I say, there's a, there's a cohort of people out there who are serial advisors who have provided probably the square root of nothing. Another angle to it, which I hadn't realised, I suppose it feels to me there's so many question marks around it. That, as you say, that if you're thinking of going into this, especially if you're a founder, but but even if you are prepared to offer some sweat equity in terms of provide the sweat to get the equity, it's best to get some advice, first of all. One, to realise what you're letting yourself in for and, and the benefits and the potential drawbacks of it. Do we find sometimes that people will have a sweat equity agreement with someone and then once the company gets bigger, then there's a more of a established commercial agreement or do you generally keep into sweat equity? Sometimes, you know, certainly I've, I've seen as companies mature, people go from being kind of compensated with equity to, you know, when a company has five or 10 million pounds in the bank, they can suddenly say, well, actually we can pay you a consultancy fee. You know, you kind of retain the equity that you originally had. And I think that's where, you know, getting that advice, getting best practice in place, getting, you know, those key relationships in place is, is one of the most important things. And, and for people who are working with startups, it's also important to understand the timeline for that sweat equity to become real. You know, in many cases, you're putting in hours and hours of effort now that might come to something in 10 or 12 years time. And so, you know, if you're running a consultancy or a business and you're working with startups, like just be conscious that you have to balance the sweat equity component with the um, with the component where you can invoice and money comes into your bank account because it's a, it can be a very challenging, challenging balancing act. But where this works, it works really well. Like there are lots of people who are incredibly incentivized to help with the prospect of being part of the the upside of the business, especially if they're able to make a material difference to that company in the the first six months or eighteen months or, or two years, I would also say you know most advisors have a kind of shelf life of two or three years. You know, as the company gets to a Series A or Series B or is raising lots more money, they will necessarily have different questions and different challenges and, and different requirements, and you know just kind of being being aware of that and structuring your advisory agreements in such a way that they reflect that is uh, is important. And also on both sides of the table, get legal advice. I have had options in companies that I helped out years ago where the company ended up selling and the options weren't honored, you know, just because there were some complexity in, in legal agreements and things like this. So, you know, it can um, it can end up in a slightly different place than you would have expected it. And I think on that note, it's, it's well worth readers um, who purchased the book to actually read Howard's story or advice in, in this area, especially around 
from a founder's point of view and what you're getting back and make sure it's very clear up front what you expect and what needs to be provided to keep that agreement the right side of effective, efficient, whatever you want to call it. Because I can imagine with this, bitterness can come in from both sides if things aren't worked out at the start. And that's it. Once bitterness starts to sink in, then both sides can feel hard done by and that doesn't help anyone whatsoever. No. No, not good for the soul. No, not at all. And uh, yeah, that's a big one. Sweat equity is one of those ones that, yeah, again, I know we've said this before, but you could almost write a book on sweat equity and we could definitely cover a whole episode of getting people in on all three or four different angles to it with the the pros and cons. But definitely one to, by all accounts, to seriously think about before stepping forward, whatever side of the table you're on, be it a founder or someone who can offer that expertise in return for equity in the business so one to ponder on and and if we move on to the final which is a bit drier the third word's a little bit drier compared to sweat equity but that is term sheet and this is like a lot of these words is a word i don't touch every day every month i'm aware of it i've seen some i have different feedback from people on what they see a term sheet but again layman's term it's a document outlining the terms and conditions of a potential business agreement. It just kind of gets the ball rolling, sets out in paper the basis for a relationship, future negotiations between a seller and a buyer. I think where I get different opinions sometimes is how binding they should or are. And I always think it's quite good to get things down on paper in in any relationship because it gets to a point where you need to actually be very clear on what both sides get from an agreement. And also with term sheets, there's this whole thing about a lot of people see it as camp should be binding or more binding. Some people see it as more of um, what you'd call a, a good faith agreement. And I suppose it's being very clear up front where it sits, your respective term sheet with someone. What's your experience with term sheets, Eamon? I mean, you must have seen loads of them. Is it, too, are they are they, are they worth the paper they're written on or are they taken too seriously? Or I think for the most part, they are worth the paper they're they're written on or the, you know, laptop keys that they're typed out on you know for the most part in my little corner of the world again you know term sheets are usually what we send to companies when we're going to make an investment in them or when we're you know very very seriously going to make an investment in them and there's kind of two forms of of term sheet right there's there's the kind of initial one that you send which is you know in some cases one or two pages in others kind of five to seven or eight pages and it outlines effectively the material terms of the investment that's that's being proposed so we say we're going to put a million euro out of a 2 million round into this company at a valuation of you know 10 million euro we need a board seat we want you know these pro rata rights to to allow us to invest in the next round we have you know these preferences etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. and it forms the basis then of the the negotiation between you and the company that then gets you to kind of the second term sheet which is the the binding one right like the what they call the the long form term sheet now even long form term sheets i have seen blow up you know we have had cases where companies have had signed term sheets and everything was looking good and and at the last in fact we saw a lot of this in 2000 2001 where normally what happens when a vc makes an investment in a company they do all the term sheets and then they go to their investors and draw down 
the money that they need to make the investment. So when you see a VC fund has a $100 million or $100 million VC fund, that doesn't mean they have that money sitting in the bank. Their investors have that money and you draw it down as you need it. And in, certainly in the dot-com bust, in a lot of cases, they went to those investors and those investors said, well, I just don't have the money. And so you had what, what's called an LP default. The term sheet had to be pulled and the deal, the deal was off. So term sheets can fall apart at the last minute. In general, once you get to those long form ones, it's unlikely that they will. But normally when you start negotiating these kind of shorter form ones, it's on a relatively exclusive. So once the term sheet, that short form term sheet is initial when it's signed, you're kind of in an exclusive relationship for, you know, either a two, three, four week period where we as investors will do our final due diligence, we'll negotiate the exact terms that will go into those long forms, we'll you know, make any changes that are needed to shareholders agreements, articles of association, etc. So that all the kind of legal I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Some term sheets are what they call exploding term sheets. So I'll send you a term sheet saying, hey, I want to invest a million euro in, into your company. And you have two hours to sign this term sheet. And if you don't, the deal is off, which is a horrible tactic to use, by the way. I've never done it. I never would, but I've I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Usually not a good sign. So exploding term sheets, you have increasingly now, again, since the kind of economy went a little bit bonkers, you have what they call dirty term sheets, where investors will insert terms into the contract that give them far better preferences or far better outcomes in the event of a sale or, or, or far better treatment regardless of the outcome of the business. So they will ask for additional board seats. They will ask for what they call liquidation preference. So in normal term sheets, the investors normally get their like one X their money back. So if I put a million dollars in and the company sells for, you know, $50 million, I get my million dollars back out first, and, and then the rest is kind of distributed. They do 2x, 3x, 4x liquidation preferences, meaning that they get twice, three times, or four times their investment back before the rest is distributed to the employees and founders. So there's lots of really horrible things that can go into, into a term sheet. And I would definitely encourage everyone to kind of study term sheets if they're thinking about raising capital. So you know, Y Combinator, uh, Seedcamp, uh, lots of others have kind of templated term sheet that you can see and have a look at. But definitely, you know, get good at identifying what some of the kind of more egregious terms are within within term sheets. And and there is a, an amazing book that uh, that my colleague Brad Feld, or my former colleague at Techstars, Brad Feld, wrote uh, called Venture Deals: uh, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer. And basically, Venture Deals is a book that breaks down the term sheets almost kind of line by line by line and goes through all of the good, the bad, and the ugly clauses that can be in there, how they can be used, what the kind of different scenarios are, etc. So, term sheets are, are usually a source of joy for founders. The kind of water I pour on the the fire uh, all the time is like none of it is real until the money is in your bank account. So signed term sheets, agreements, everything, it's great. It's even better when the money has been has been wired to you. Then you know the term sheet has been uh, has been honored. But certainly used every day in investment, used every day in in mergers and acquisitions, used in in lots of different cases, and and something that it's important to uh, to have a grasp of. And worth taking time over by the sounds of it, especially as it gets more binding and the detail comes in and be if that detail is a little bit left field or sneakily put in, which doesn't bode well, I don't think, if that happens. But generally speaking, that's where it gets to the serious end, isn't it? Where you do need legal advice and you do need to sit down 
and look at something and understand what it means or understand from the expert what it means and make some decisions because I'd imagine it is quite enticing to kind of get caught up in it all and think this is fantastic, this is great, I love these people, this is going to be good and dare I say people are busy and you might just sign things to tick the box and then think, oh my goodness, what have I done? Like any big legal document, you need legal advice and it's money, even though it takes time and you know it isn't cheap, it could cost you a lot more in the future if you don't get it. Yeah, founders have happy years, right? And so they get a term sheet from an investor and they think, woohoo, like this is great. We're on the, the investment train now. You know, in some cases, I remember an example a couple of years ago where a company got a got a term sheet and I remember reading through it. And I'm not a lawyer, right? But I, I can kind of at least understand some of the, the nuance of it. And there was a load of really horrible terms in the in the term sheet. And so we sent it back with some comments saying, look, never in a million years would we agree to this, 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 and this. And several months later, I was talking to that investor and I was like, that first term sheet that you sent was like, we almost kind of walked away from the deal because it looked so obnoxious. And they were like, oh, we send it as a test to see if people go, oh yeah, everything is fine here. And if they're kind of detail-oriented enough to look at some of the horrible things that, that this investor put in there just to, to see if people had that that ability to look at it. But you do need to get legal advice, like even now with, with close to, a, well, over a decade's experience of looking at, at term sheets, you know, I still look at ones and go, everything looks great here. And then it goes to someone who's actually qualified and they go, okay, now we need to take out this, 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 and this. So it's a really important document. If you're raising capital, you need to be really careful because you know, there can be things in there that will torpedo your business or give people some sort of shareholder majority that requires you to get 90% of the investors to agree on doing something, which I can tell you is a Herculean task to do regardless of how friendly you are with them. So it's a really important document. Hopefully, you know, many of the people listening to this will sign many of them over the lifetime of their businesses, each increasing in, in value substantially. But you definitely need to have professional help. You definitely need to have kind of a qualified pair of eyes look them over because, again, as we said earlier, the devil is in the detail in these things. And, you know, one little bit of slightly unusual phrasing in a legal document could be interpreted in any number of different ways in a in a future courthouse setting. And, and obviously no one wants to um, wants to get to that point. Again, it's one of those ones where outside help's needed it's a bit of a journey. I'd imagine a term sheet. You can get that excitement at the start. Fantastic. Let's look at it. But it is kind of, you need a lot of, uh, should we say, not necessarily patience, but you've got to be in it for the long run. You've got to go through the, I'd imagine, all the different remixes of it and the questions and backwards and forwards. And it's important to do that because at the end of the day, it's a very important document once you get down to the more binding end of it all where, where every sentence matters and, and you don't want to make the wrong decision. Absolutely. It's... Uh... One of the foundational documents that you will sign as a company founder. So make sure you get it right. Perfect. Well, Eamon, I can't believe it. We've covered three very different phrases, words there today. We kind of had a little bit of a play in the middle with sweat equity, which feels a bit more like an informal term, but is a very serious term. And then either side of that, we, we had secondary selling and term sheets. So hopefully for people listening we help put some more colour around those words. As per normal, if you have any questions for Eamon and I, you disagree with what we said or what one of us has said, please let us know. Our email details are in the episode notes. And it just goes to say, Eamon, thank you again for your time. And I believe we are actually at the window U to Z on the next episode. So we're whizzing through. One to go. So thanks for your time, Eamon, and uh, look forward to catching up on the next show. Thanks again. 
So that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the series and please rate us and leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. And as mentioned at the start, if you want to explore further 200 plus startup words and phrases, details of where you can buy the startup lexicon book can be found in the notes this episode. Thanks again and have a great day.